Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He's writing to a church he's never visited, he didn't plant. So it's quite interesting to see how does he write to a church that he wasn't involved in establishing. He normally was. He says, grace to you, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is one of Paul's prayers, and um, his prayers are so powerful and instructive because your prayers really represent your priorities, I think. When you think about what the things you pray for, they're no doubt the things that are closest to your heart, the things that you most live with on a day-to-day basis, the things that dominate your mind, your thoughts, your passions. And they overflow in prayer, don't they? Uh, when you're desperate to pass an exam, you pray. Even if you never pray at other times, you pray then because you care about it the most right now. If you're thinking interested in that other person, you start praying about it, even if you're not given to prayer about other things. Prayer reflects your priorities and also your passions. So when we're looking at the prayers of Paul in his letters, and he often writes down the things he's praying for, the book of Ephesians, half of that book is prayer. It's just written down prayers for the Ephesian church. When he does this, we're getting a window, an insight, not only into the heart of Paul as the apostle, but also through that window, the heart of Christ for his church, what his priorities are for his church. And that ought to be something we're interested in, I think. It ought to be something that excites us, shapes our understanding of what ought to be our priorities in church life. Um, I think there's a lot of competing voices around and about about what church should be for, what it's seeking to do, what it represents, what its vision ought to be. And I want as far as possible for our hearts and our minds to be shaped by the word of God when it comes to what this church is called to be and do in this city. So, this is why we want to look at this prayer. And it felt right just last week we looked at those early verses where he just talks about thanksgiving. What is it that we praise God for when we think about the church? And we praise him that we have faith, that we have love, that we have hope in Christ. And we recognize that the church is a miracle of God. Without God's spirit blowing through a people, without him bringing the binding force of love and community, the church wouldn't exist. The church isn't a man-made institution. 
It doesn't, it doesn't really resemble other institutions in the world, clubs and societies and the things that we can be part of, because there is something fundamentally different, that it is the power of God at work binding us together, creating within us real faith, real love, real hope in Christ, and drawing us together in a profoundly um, miraculous way. So this is, what, this is what we were thinking about last week. And here, from verse 9 onwards, the, the emphasis of what Paul writes here tilts towards his present and future hope for the Colossian church. And I want us to think about this and evaluate our passions for our own church as we read what he's praying for here. And to begin with, I just want to say that I'm, I'm deeply impressed and challenged by Paul's prayer life. For a few reasons. First of all, the, the mere fact that he's praying for the Colossian church should it make an impression upon us. Because Paul hadn't planted this church. He hadn't even visited it. We live in the age where when we, when we get news about a church that's, that's being planted in another city or another part of the world, we can stay up to date with email newsletters, with videos, um, with blogs and all the rest of it. And, you know, we're, we're part of a worldwide movement of churches that are planting churches in all parts of the world. One of the most recent ones is happening in Thailand. And those guys have been putting vi- videos up online about, you know, these Americans who've just basically launched out from L.A., about over 20 of them. And half of them have never even been to Thailand. And they've, they've, <laughs> they've bought one-way tickets to go and plant a church in, in Thailand. And I just think, wow, it's, it's hard not to get excited about it when you see the reports and when you're reading about their faith and you see what's going on and you get pictures and images of what the societies are like there. Now, for Paul, he had none of that. He hadn't been there. The Colossian church were perfect strangers to him. He may have had some imagination of what it's like, but despite the fact that he hadn't been there and hadn't planted the church, it's, it lived in his heart. He cared passionately about the Colossian church. And not only did he care, but he recognized that his greatest contribution that he could give to that church was his prayer life. You see the same kind of thing going on, as I mentioned, in, in the book of Ephesians. So while he's not there... He can write things like this. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I think probably most of Paul's missionary work took place in his prayer life. I know he traveled from place to place. He put his life on the line. He witnessed individuals. He planted churches in all kinds of places. But Paul did not think that that was the sum total of his work. Clearly, his prayer life was the engine, the driving force, the the powerhouse behind what he did. So he can write to the Ephesian church, he can write to the Colossian church and talk about the fact that he is praying for them. And I I just think there's a challenge in there. Is prayer the strongest way that you contribute to the mission of God in the world? I'm not saying it to condemn us, because I think most of us probably would say answering the negative. Um, Is prayer something that you are giving to the mission of Christ? Here? And further afield. Maybe in the towns that you come from. I know we've all come from different places. Maybe in parts of the world that you carry a passion for. Do you carry the burden of the mission of Jesus in your prayer life? So I'm challenged, first of all, by the mere fact that he's praying. But I'm also challenged by this. The fact that he says that his prayer life was constant. Did you notice it? He says, and so, verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He hasn't stopped. 
Now, even as I ask the question about your prayer life, I'm sure most of you, most of us, I should say, feel some pang of guilt when we think about our own uh, often pathetic attempts at prayer, right? Um, That's how it can feel, our own subjective assessment of things. And I think we make all kinds of self-justifying excuses for this. Uh, Probably the most common of all is, I'm too busy. I know some of you work incredibly hard. A lot harder than I do. <laughs> I know some of you are insanely busy, and I think I probably look uh, most intently at the, the mums here. You know, they, they're the ones whose lives, they just have demands on them from the moment they wake up until pretty much the moment they, they go to sleep. And, uh, and then somewhat down the list comes the rest of you guys, you know, lawyers and bankers and all the rest of it. So, okay, so well, I'm too busy, we say, but can you just put your hand up if this week you haven't Checked Facebook or Twitter or other social media, watched TV or read the news. Has anyone not done any of those things this week? There you go. I think I made my point, right? Okay, we can move on. We'll move swiftly on. I'm too busy. I'm not sure it really qualifies. Another excuse that people make is they say, um, they say I, I don't really set aside time for prayer. I'm just always in prayer. Just always praying. And, uh, you know, this, this sort of this idea that your, your, your mind, your spirit is just weaving in and out of a prayer zone all day long. And I think people who say that, you know, I think in a sense, I, I applaud it if, if it's true, but I, I doubt that it is true. I think if you don't have a set time where, where you're, you are praying in a very definite, deliberate, concentrated way, it's very doubtful that the rest of your life is just a tapestry of prayer. It just doesn't seem very realistic to me at all. So people say that. Another thing people say is, I, don't, I can't concentrate when I pray. So you, so you get in a place to go and pray, and your mind wanders to a hundred or a thousand different things, concerns, and all of that. And I would just say to you, you know, this is something that most of us recognize, but first and foremost, that's a theological problem. Because for some reason, you haven't realized that when you've got on your knees to pray, you're praying to the Lord of the universe. He demands and can rightly ask for our concentration. It's a theological problem, first and foremost. But then secondarily, it's also a practical issue. You know, I don't think you can realistically expect to be able to pray when your laptop or iPad's open, your phone is right in front of you, um, the TV's on, or there's people buzzing in and out of the room. Friends, make it a priority that you do concentrate when you pray and set aside time for it. So what does Paul mean when he says here that he prays constantly or without ceasing? We have not ceased to pray for you. I don't think it means that he prayed without ever stopping. Like, if you just interrupted Paul one day, he'd be like... (laughs) Just praying without stopping. I don't think it means that. I don't think it means that he he, um, was doing, like... You ever heard of that, the Orthodox prayer, the the Jesus prayer? It goes like this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And and people think that you should just say it repeatedly. So you might count off, I'm going to say it 70 times today, or 140 times today, and you count off your beads on your rosary or whatever whatever you do, to keep check of how many times you're saying it. And I just think, you know, when Jesus said, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the pagans do, I'm pretty sure he had that kind of thing in mind. And I don't think that's what Paul was doing. I don't think he was just going, Lord, bless the Colossian church, bless the Colossian church, bless the Colossian church, bless the Colossian church, all day long, without that kind of 
without a sense of engagement or meaning or specificity in what he's praying for. So when you think, what is Paul doing when he says that he prays without ceasing? And he says it here, but he also says it in other places for other churches. I think the, the only rational answer to that is that Paul, every day, he set aside a portion of his day, and without fail, he brought to his mind, to his remembrance, the concerns of the churches that he carried in his heart. That he had a kind of a mental prayer list, I guess. And that he was faithful. That he didn't lose heart because of his prayers maybe didn't seem to get immediate answers. You know, the trouble with Paul's prayers is he, he wouldn't know for months even if they were answered. So you pray for the Roman church, and the Roman church is a couple of thousand miles away, and it's going to take about six weeks to get there and back. So to hear any news from someone, you're not going to know if your prayers are answered. But all the time, like a, like a, a metronome, he's just pray, pray. Pray every day without fail. This is what impresses me about him. He prays, he prays constantly. You get the same thing going on in the book of Romans when he says, he's, he's talking about that church. And he says, I mean, this is strong language. He says, God is my witness, which is a kind of a Jewish way of saying, I'm telling the truth and I swear to you. He says, I, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. It challenges you, doesn't it? You think, well, we're going to be a church that, by God's grace, has an impact and impacts individuals and maybe families, maybe even communities. We need to be a church that is marked by a movement of prayer. And I want it to be increasingly true of me personally, but I want it to be increasingly true of us. By the way, we have our community gathering this Tuesday. We put aside our life groups for a week, which is where we gather in homes. You're new, you're welcome to come to one, but they're not happening this week. Because this week we get together on Tuesday night, and Jeremy's going to share some thoughts and stir us up, and then we are going to give ourselves to prayer. And I know for some of you it's not, it's not your, your most exciting opportunity is to be at a prayer gathering, or maybe just because you feel self-conscious, like I, don't, I can't pray out loud, or whatever it is that's going on in your heart. I would just encourage you, be present and be faithful. No one is assessing your prayers. No one's interested. We're all looking at Jesus. And he wants us to ask him for things. You have not because you ask not, it says in the book of James. So I encourage you, be there and be there with prayers. And if you don't know what to pray, pray this. Pray this prayer that Paul's praying for the Colossian church. Just recite it. Let it be on your lips for our church. And that brings me to the last thing about what impresses me about his prayer life, which is this. I'm impressed by what he prays for. And this is where I want us to, to dwell and, and spend most of our time thinking about this morning. I'm impressed by what he prays for. Because as I said last week, Paul doesn't pray for the kinds of things that you and I typically pray for when we think about churches. We pray for growth in numbers. We pray for uh, salvations. We pray for increased finances. We pray for venues. Praise God for this. They're all good things to pray for. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. But it's so interesting that that's not the stuff Paul prays for. He prays instead for what Don Carson, when he was writing about this, calls going concerns. Now, I had to look up what this meant. It's, a, it's an accountancy phrase. I'm sure some of you guys know. Maybe we can get Joe to come and give us a little... <laughs> Apparently, she's the finance expert. So anyway, um, what it means is basically if a company is operating in the black, everything's okay, 
and it, it, it's called a going concern. You can sell that company. It's not got debt in the books. It's not about to go bankrupt. It's a going concern. And this is what a, a buyer wants to know. And so when, 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 when Carson's describing what Paul prays for here, he says, Paul prays for what you call going concerns. They're the kind of things that you ought to be able to take for granted in church life. They're kind of the cogs, the machinery of normal community life in Christ's name. Stuff that ought to be a given, but which if you lose, the church is no longer the church. It really challenges me. It ought to recalibrate what we value, what we hope for. What we pray for. I was thinking, like, how, how I could describe this and sort of illustrate this for you. And perhaps one of the best examples would be how, as a parent, I pray for my children. I try and pray for them daily and sometimes more than once a day just because they're in my heart all the time. And, you know, to be honest, I don't pray much about the future in terms of, like, I'm not like praying, God, please get Seth into Cambridge. Or, you know, please, Lord, just open up a career for him in, in this or that world. You know, that's not really what's on my mind. When I pray for my kids, I'm praying, Lord, bless their health. May they grow in strength. May they grow in wisdom. Or the, what it says about Jesus, may they grow in wisdom and his stature and in favor with God and man. And I'm praying for what you can call going concerns. I see this already happening in their lives. But I'm praying, God, continue it and increase it. I think this is the kind of way that Paul prays for the churches. He thinks of it as a living organism and he's praying for the health, the kind of the stuff that really matters in church. We think about it like this. When you're pelting down the motorway at 70, 70 plus, maybe 80 miles an hour, whatever it is you drive, you know, you, you can pray um, for, for where you're going or whatever it is. But to be honest, if you really were to think about what you're doing in that car, you are, you are flying down the motorway in a metal box, a death trap. And it, all it takes is for one of those rubber wheels that just looks so fragile to just, you know, I'm gonna, some of you are never going to get in a car again, are you? All it takes is for one of them just to explode. And you lose control of the car. I've had friends who this happened to. It's got a blowout. It spins around and around and around. Anything can happen to that car. And you think, to pray for going concerns is to, is to sit there behind the wheel saying, Lord, please let that engine not catch on fire. Lord, please let those wheels keep turning and not explode. Lord, please let the axle not overheat and let my wheels stay on the car. This kind of thing. And this is the way that Paul's praying for the churches. He's thinking, what, what is it that makes a church healthy and vibrant and full of life? And it's not the stuff that we think of. It's like where we're going to go and conquer the world and, and take neighborhoods and cities, as I was saying last week. It is just like the health, the integral health of the, the living organism of the church. This is what Paul cares about. Why does it matter? Why am I underlining this so much for you? And I'll just give you a few reasons why it matters. It matters because, first of all, it's a healthy reminder to keep our, our head on what matters to Jesus. What Paul prays for here are the things that Jesus cares about in his church. And it is very easy to lose sight of those things. Churches can focus on the wrong stuff and neglect the basics. I don't want it to be true of us. Another reason why it's so important is because it, it cuts across the culture of consumerism. Which is not only true of 
our society at large, this consumeristic Western world, but it's also seeped into how people approach church life. Consumerism. People go to churches and rate them in their minds based on all kinds of criteria which probably don't closely resemble what Jesus cares about in his church. The slickness and the sound and the quality of musicianship and the production level and, and you know, these kinds of things and the architecture, whatever, I don't care. It's like all kinds of things. And people are, they're approaching church in this consumeristic way. And I know often people will, especially when they go to a new city, they're going to be, they're going to be going from church to church to church to church to church to find the one that ticks all their boxes. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be content and happy with the church you settle in. Obviously, that helps. But what I am saying is that beneath it, there can be the infection of the Western mind, which is so consumeristic in its outlook. And my question would be, well, what are you valuing and assessing that church by? Are you assessing it by what the Bible says matters in church life or by some other criteria that you've imported and counted as important? Because also this, this affects churches. Churches, because, you know, churches that want to be communities that draw and, and help people to, to stick and to grow and all that kind of things. Churches can be shaped by the consumeristic culture to care about the things that people want. So they just, they just end up offering on a plate you know, the stuff that people feel they need in church life and not asking what is it that Jesus wants in his church. I don't want to be that kind of church. You know, I don't think people know what they need a lot of the time. I think part of our sickness and part of what sin has done in our hearts is it's blinded us to what's most important and what we most need in life. If we knew what we need, wouldn't society be healthier? Wouldn't our families be healthier? Wouldn't our companies be healthier? Wouldn't the world be healthier if we really knew what we needed and what would satisfy and what would fill our lives? But so many people are going through life empty because they're searching in all the wrong places. When Paul teaches us what to pray for in a church, it cuts across this consumerism. Saying, so your church is not about what it can offer people. It's about what it, it ought to be before Jesus. And by his grace, he's going to pull people into that. But it's not about satisfying people's demands. Another reason why I think this stuff is so important is because what Paul does here is he focuses on the intangibles in church life. Not the measurables. Or if I can put it another way, he focuses on the, the, kind of the culture of the church far more than what an outside observer would think that church is accomplishing or doing. We want to be a church with a vision that's going somewhere, that's going to achieve things, and that cares about what we're going to do for Christ. We do, absolutely. But... I think it was Peter Drucker who said this first, that culture eats vision for breakfast. It's so much more important that as a church we embody the culture of Christ's family rather than what we're seeking to accomplish together. And part of that means that as we embody that culture, we're going to be a disciple-making church, but we need to constantly carry it in our hearts. What does it mean to be a healthy church? What does it mean to be a church that Christ is pleased with? In other words, who we are is far more important than what we're aiming to accomplish. So what is it then that Paul prays for? 
What is it that is at the heart of the culture of healthy church life? And it's these five things. I won't spend ages going through them. We're going to move swiftly. But these five things. First of all is their knowledge. He says, we not cease for praying for you, verse 9, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So here's what Paul thinks. He thinks that a church is a, essentially, fundamentally, a learning community. And that makes sense to me, because our faith is not a bunch of practices and rituals. A lot of people think that they're Christians because they go through practices and rituals that they've imitated or inherited from parents or family or culture. And sadly, that doesn't mean you're a Christian at all. You could just be engaging in prolonged self-deception. Remember what Jesus said when he set his disciples off on the mission to spread the word throughout the world. He said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Teaching them. So at its heart, our faith is one that's based around understanding and the knowledge of God and his will. Isn't this also what comes across in the portrait of the godly man? In, uh, in Psalm chapter 1, the very first psalm, where he says that the blessed man is the one who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf doesn't wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So he's painting the picture of somebody whose life is healthy and godly. But how, what's the key to that? He says, he delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's a man, he's a per- this is a person whose mind is filled with the thoughts of God and who is growing in knowledge day after day. So when Paul thinks about his church, he wants it to be a learning community, which is why we unashamedly want to be people who base ourselves around the word of God because we think this is the only way you can truly know God in an unfiltered way. It's why we put emphasis on preaching on Sundays. It's why when we gather for life groups, we open the Word of God. We go through verse by verse. We ask questions that force our eyes to to look carefully at what is being said in the Bible. I want to say, though, as well, that this growth in knowledge is not just an intellectual thing. I think it is possible to be a person who knows all the right stuff but doesn't know God. This is why Paul has to pray. This is why you pray that they'll be filled with the knowledge of his will and come to know God in a deeper way because it's not just an intellectual thing. It's something that engages the whole person, your spirit. And it is a work of the Holy Spirit in a church when that church can say that we are growing in the knowledge of God. As Hosea says, let us No, let us press on to know the Lord. I want it to be true of us. Along that we be a people who seek and treasure the knowledge of God above everything else. Here's a second thing he prays for. He prays for their godliness. He says, 
that we're praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual and wisdom and understanding, so as, verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, Paul prays something very similar for uh, the Ephesian church. Ephesians 4, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. When he's writing to the Philippian church, he says something similar. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and so on. What is all this language of worthiness? Because we are people who base our existence around the gospel, don't we? We celebrate that Christ died on the cross for us so that not one bit of our sin is held against us on judgment and that all of Christ's righteousness, his goodness, his worthiness is imputed to us so that we are counted as part of Christ's family. And we celebrate this. This is grace, right? It's all free. It's given to us. So why does Paul keep talking about becoming worthy of this calling? Isn't that a bit of a contradiction? Isn't it a bit legalistic? Doesn't it seem a little bit driven that as a church you need to become worthy of being called Christians? I think you've got to understand it this way. It's not about becoming worthy so that you can be accepted into God's family. If it were about that, none of us would belong. It's about the fact that when you become a Christian, as we heard in the, in the prayers during the worship, Christ's name is stamped on your forehead. You get a new family name. And when you belong to this new family, you embody that family wherever you go. This only really makes sense in, in the context of a kind of honor-shame culture, which we are not in here in the Western world. Here's what Carson said about it. He says, rugged individualism pervades much Western ideology. And whatever shame we feel is rather slight compared with the shame brought on by corporate pressures imposed on people in many cultures of the world. So people in the West, in other words, we can feel shame for guilt, things that we feel embarrassed about or defiled by in our own hearts. But do you know, it's very hard to understand if you're not from an Eastern culture, and I'm not, but in Eastern, in the East, you're far more likely to feel shame because of corporate pressures, because you represent your family, your school, your company, your village, your whatever. And he goes on, in a, in a shame culture, people are taught that they must be worthy of their family's name, worthy of their country, worthy of their heritage. And by contrast, many Westerners are applauded when they act in stubborn independence of their peers. We're taught to live as though we're accountable to no one here. But that's not the, way, the context in which the Bible was written. The Bible's written in a very different culture, where to, be, to be, call yourself a Christian in a city like you're one of that group who call yourself Christians in Colossae. One of Paul's deepest concerns is that they embody the godliness that ought to be true of the church. And when they don't, they're bringing slander on the name of Jesus. And when they do, they're bringing glory to Jesus' name. I think this is where Paul's coming from when he's thinking about the worthiness in the church and this godliness going on in, this, in the community. We carry Christ's name before a watching world. 
Now this doesn't mean that as a church we have to set up walls around us and protect ourselves from the defilements of people out there. The church exists to welcome in those who recognize that they're sinners. Jesus says we go after the lost. We go after the broken. We welcome sinners, but here's the distinction. We do not cherish sin. I say it because we need to keep remembering this. How easy it is to cherish sin in your heart. The psalmist writes, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. To cherish sin is to be unwilling to repent of the things that God is convicting you of. To cherish sin is to walk very deliberately along these two paths, straddling two worlds. With one foot in the church and one foot outside. To cherish sin in your heart is to have a mixed heart rather than a single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. And while we welcome anyone who can confess and own up to the fact that their life is sinful and they need Jesus, we do not cherish sin in our hearts. I say it to you individually because it's your job, first and foremost, to be killing sin, to be about that work by the power of the Spirit. But I also say it to us as a family because it's also our job together to help one another in that. It's an invitation. You see sin in my life, come and tell me. Tell me. I'm not going to be defensive. I might, but that would probably be sin as well. So you can tell me about that after. <laughs> you see sin in your brother or sister. You know, yeah, Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye and then go and deal with the speck. But the point is not that you just ignore the speck. The loving thing is, okay, after you've got on your own knees and repented of your own wrong, you go to them and help them. We all want to be able to see, basically. And we don't want to cherish sin in our midst. It matters when an individual in the church is struggling. It affects the whole body. It affects us internally. It affects our worship. It affects our devotion to Christ. It affects the spiritual temperature of the church when sin is allowed to get into our midst, as it were. But it also affects our witness. What we're saying about Jesus to a watching world. And friends, I say it to you to extend to you again and again, week after week, the invitation. Friends, let's keep repenting that Christ will change our hearts and change our lives to become more like him, the worthy one, the righteous one. We want to be like Jesus, don't we? You know that. He prays about godliness. But also, no, his emphasis is mainly positive. Fully pleasing to him. I think Paul's expectation is that most churches, most of the time, are going to please Jesus. So we don't need to go around sort of, woe is us, we are nothing but dirty, rotten sinners, and we must, we must constantly berate ourselves and flog ourselves. No, we go around just aware of God's pleasure upon us. How wonderful the Father delights in us. How liberating 
We just confess it, deal with it. And Jesus smiles upon us, fully pleasing to him. That's what we want to aim for, right? A godly community. He prays for knowledge. He prays for godliness. He prays for fruit, fruitfulness. Um, he says, bearing fruit, verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Jesus expected this. He says um, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 5, he says, he tells us to uh, practice our good works before others so that they'll glorify God who's in heaven. In Ephesians uh, 2, Paul says this is kind of the reason we were saved, actually. He says that we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, when you start to understand this, it ought to be no surprise to you that the church, speaking very broadly, not just this church, the church very broadly in our, in our society contributes way above its weight in terms of blessing and helping society. Whether it's through politics all the way through to grassroots community help. The church is doing phenomenal things. And if you were to take the church out of Britain, society would begin to crumble much faster than you think. Because the church is doing phenomenal things. But I look around us and I think, actually we're not doing so much. I want us to do more. I think that as a church we're called to be overflowing in good works. Most of this is organic. It's not me telling you what to do. It's you guys running with the things that you're passionate about. You don't need permission. But we want to be a church that quite naturally gives birth to fruitfulness because it's just a way of worshipping Jesus. Jesus says there's something wrong when we're not fruitful. I'm the true vine. My father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so it may bear more fruit. I don't think he's meant as a threat. I think it's more a statement of fact that when branches are fruitless, they're actually not, they're not Christian. They're not part of the family. It should be the most natural thing in the world for Christians to bear fruit in their lives. That their lives overflow in generosity, in service, in love, in help, in mercy, in all kinds of things. It doesn't need to be big and flashy. It can be the simplest things that you do in in acts of self-giving love for others. But Paul prays, may that Colossian church, may Grace London be a church that is abounding in fruitful works for Jesus Christ. We need to pray this stuff. It's the signs of life. It's the evidence that a church has life, that it bears fruit. He prays prays fourthly for power. Okay, this is more familiar to me as a charismatic Christian. Power! Come on, Lord. May you be strengthened with all power. And I'm like, amen! And then he says, and then he says, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And I'm like, oh, that's not quite what I signed up for. I was like, I want to do miracles. I want to, like, you know, heal the sick and all the rest of it. And Paul's like, wait a minute. This is what you need power for. This is what you need the Holy Spirit for in your church. For endurance, for patience. Because most Christians don't go out in a bang, they're just worn down. The fire that was in their heart when they first came to Christ just dims through just daily struggles. The normal anxieties of life. The bad reactions you get to your faith when you tell people you're a Christian. 
the, 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 the struggle that you have on a daily basis to open the Bible and think that you're hearing anything from God or to pray and feel like you're getting anywhere with your prayers. Most Christians don't sort of go out in a bang where they just do something crazy like you know, embezzling money or committing adultery or doing whatever it is they do. Some, for some that happens, but actually that's just a symptom of something that was wrong in their heart way before. Actually our faith is destroyed through just relentless wearing away. Through weariness, through tiredness. And Paul's praying for power because, friends, we're called to run until we hit the finishing line. Run with endurance. How are you doing at enduring? That's part of the question. But the other part of it is how are you enduring, how are you doing at enduring happily? Because doesn't he say it here? For all endurance and patience with joy. He, you know, for Paul, is if Christians lose their happiness in Christ, something's wrong there. The power of Christ is not on them like it needs to be. We need to be praying for that person until their joy is restored. Do you know someone in this congregation who's lost their joy? Pray for them every day until they get it back. Our lives should be radiant with the goodness of God, with happiness, with joy in the Holy Spirit. So not only are we faithful and enduring and plodding, but we're not doing it through gritted teeth. We're doing it out of the abundance of our delight in our Savior. Patience with joy. This is what he prays for the powerful in them. And lastly, he prays for gratitude. He says, uh, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And this is where he's come full circle, because remember how he opened it up. We always thank God. So he says, this is our prayer life. We always thank God. That's the most notable thing you'd notice if you came and prayed with me one day in my prayer closet. That's what Paul's saying. I'm always giving thanks to God, because he's so generous. He's so kind. And then when he brings it around to a conclusion, he's praying for the Colossian church, or he's praying for our church. What is it that, that is his last priority? The thing he wants to leave us with is this, that we be a church that is full of gratitude to God. He's come full circle. Why? Because the worst thing that can happen to a church is that they lose the wonder. They lose the wonder of what their faith is about, what Christ has done, of our enormous privilege. I think that's why he closes it off here at the end where he says, He has delivered us. This is a reminder for them. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you think you've run out of things to thank God for. Remember this. This is why we take communion every single week. I don't want us to ever lose sight of what is most important about us. That we are a community that says thank you. It's all about what you've done for us and not about what we've done for you. And our gratitude can be eroded partly through the bad stuff in our life. When our eyes are taken off Jesus through sin. But also through the good stuff. Exciting stuff. Wonderful stuff that God's doing in our lives. But stuff which takes us off what's central. The most important stuff. What Jesus has done for us, his heroism, his all-sufficiency, the fact that he is our saviour, the fact that he has redeemed us, the fact that we are his people. If this is true of us, if these things are true of our church culture, we will be a healthy church. 
And lives will be impacted when they come in here. Something will strike them the moment they walk in that we are different. Isn't that what we want? Wherever you go, that your life radiates these wonderful qualities. You walk with God, you know him. There's a godliness about you. There's fruitfulness as your life just gives birth to all kinds of good deeds in Christ's name. There's power to just keep going joyfully and you're always saying thank you. There's a sparkle in your eye for all that Christ has done for you.